fossil fans and dino lovers, welcome to the Paleo Podcast, brought to you by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Here are your hosts, Tim and Dr. Andrew. All right, Tim, how is it going today? It's going pretty good. So aren't you kind of bored of talking about dinosaur fossils? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's fair enough. Well, (laughs) if anybody else out there is, we have an episode that is slightly different than what we have been doing before. So today we have not one, but two very special guests, Dr. Andy Chaya and Andrea Corpolongo from the University of Cincinnati Department of Geology. Andy is an associate professor, and Andrea is a PhD candidate and National Science Foundation fellow. And they're both researchers who focus on understanding some of the earliest known life on Earth, as well as how we can best search for signs of life elsewhere in the universe. In addition, Andy and Andrea are members of the science team for NASA's Mars 2020 mission, where they contribute to the ongoing operations of the Perseverance rover and the primary mission objective of searching for signs of past life on Mars. Andy and Andrea, thank you both so much for joining us today. So as we speak, the Perseverance rover is up on Mars doing science. So could you both share how exactly you are involved with the day-to-day operations of this mission? Andy, we can start with you. Hi, thanks. Um, yeah, so I'm a, uh, I, I'm on the mission as a returned sample science participating scientist. And what that means is the, uh, so the, the mission, the, one of the main goals of the mission is to bring back samples of Mars, bring back pieces of rock, rock that we could study uh, in laboratories here on Earth. And to do so, we need to collect the best samples to, for that and the samples that we think are going to answer all of our questions. And so there's a group of us who are sort of in charge of keeping track of what what samples we want to collect for those purposes. And I'm one of those people. And uh, so day to day, I I help out not every day, but uh, a a number of days um, each week and and month to help run the rover and decide where the rover should go. I don't get to use a joystick and drive it around, but (laughs) I get to help you know, decide where we're going to go with the rover, what we're going to do, what what rocks we're going to study with all of the scientific instruments on the rover and which ones we're going to uh, take, you know, take a piece of and, and store it on board for to bring back with a later mission. And so uh, I'm, I mean, don't, you know, I obviously don't make those decisions myself. There's a whole group of us that do that. And we also have a lot of other meetings throughout the week of various groups thinking about different types of science we want to do with the samples and and on Mars itself. Very cool. How about you, Andrea? So I'm on the mission as a student collaborator. And like Andy, I I do fill some roles during daily operations sometimes to help, you know, decide where the rover is going to go and what we're going to look at. Most often I serve as something called a documentarian. Uh, and there my job is actually to document all like the, the discussion points and any decisions made by the different teams working on daily operations and then make a report so that all the teams have that to, to reference, to keep track of all the moving parts of daily operations because there's a lot going on yeah. um, and it's hard, hard to keep track of. And I also go to lots of meetings. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so it sounds like for this mission and presumably other NASA missions as well, this is all a very highly collaborative effort. Yeah, it's the most collaborative science that I have ever 
been a part of or seen. It's really cool that way. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, there are literally hun- there are literally hundreds of people working on this mission. So, Andy, you mentioned the Perseverance rover is collecting samples that a later mission will return to Earth so that we can study them in greater detail in research labs here. So I recently read you are one of 16 scientists in the world selected to be a part of the Mars Sample Return Campaign Science Group. Kind of a mouthful there. And that is to plan for these samples to come back to Earth. So can you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah, I was really honored to be selected amongst uh, uh, a whole bunch of people who yeah. applied to be on this on this group, and we we just started earlier this year and uh, back in, in basically in June, and so we're still uh, getting up and running on all the different things we're going to do over the next couple of years. Uh, but yeah, so th- this is a this Mars sample return, meaning you know bringing samples back from Mars, uh, is a big big program within NASA, but also the, the European Space Agency. So this is this group is a joint you know, working group or committee between people in the United States. There's some folks from Canada. There's folks from Europe. There's a, uh, someone participating from Japan as well. So it's, it's a very international group. And yeah, we, uh, we're there to plan for uh, how to bring these samples back, what, uh, what to do with them once they come back. And so it's a long project because the samples, we're not planning to bring them back until the early 2030s, which may sound like a long time from now, but these sorts of missions take a long time to plan. So we need to start thinking about these things now. And most recently, just last week, actually, we had a uh, workshop that ran, uh, it was a virtual workshop. So anyone in the world could participate uh, remotely. And uh, we, we were there to ask people, you know, do do you think the samples we've collected so far would be a good set of samples to bring back from Mars? Do, do they meet a, a lot of the uh, objectives and goals that people have for samples from Mars? Because if we bring them back, we can use any laboratory instrument we have on Earth to study them. We're not limited by what we can put on a rover and send to Mars. We can study them with anything. And so there are people who've been planning for years also what sort of work they want to do on these samples. So we wanted to see, to make sure everyone in the community of researchers who would potentially be the ones looking at these, though we have, you know, no decisions have been made yet on who gets to look at these. It'll be open to to anyone who can justify getting to look at them. We we have these these large goals and objectives and which, you know, will the samples we've collected so far meet that? And there was overwhelming agreement within the community that, yes, this is an exciting set of samples that we've collected so far, and we're only going to collect more samples and make it even more exciting. Yeah, very cool. I was at that meeting, and you sure did get a lot of tough questions, but you can tell you're all very prepared and you know know what you're doing. So congratulations again on being a part of that group. Oh, thank you. So Andrea, I mentioned that you are a PhD candidate. So some of our listeners may not be aware of what exactly that is. Could you tell us a bit about that and maybe share some advice for our listeners who may want to become scientists themselves one day? Sure. Uh, So PhD programs usually take four or five years, and they're kind of roughly broken up into two stages. Uh, For the first year or two, you're called a PhD student, and your main task is to learn a lot about whatever you're studying, your area of study. And every PhD student starts uh, with a different level of background knowledge and experience doing research. So this looks different for everyone. 
But basically, you read like the foundational papers about your field. You learn the instruments in the lab that you're a part of, and usually you'll take classes related to your field. And do, during that time, you're thinking about a research project that you are going to lead in the future. And this will be under the guidance of the scientist who runs the lab you're in, um, who gets called like your advisor or the primary investigator of the lab. Mm -hmm. So Andy is my advisor. And then depending on the specific situation, the overall topic of your project will be more or less figured out when you start out as a PhD student, but you need to figure out the details, like what specific hypotheses you're going to test, what samples you'll need, what data you'll collect, and then how you, you will analyze that data. Mm-hmm. And once you have that worked out, then you have a qualifying exam, which could be different depending on the program. Sometimes there's an actual exam, sometimes there's not. But part of it will be presenting this project that you planned out um, during the first half of your program to your PhD committee, which is basically a group of scientists who have some expertise in the field that you're working in, who you've actually been checking in with as you as you planned your project. And they'll give you feedback on the proposed project and maybe they'll suggest changes. Maybe they'll just give you some information that will like help you carry out the project. And once the committee agrees that you have planned out a good solid research project, then you have passed your quals, you passed your qualifying exam. And that's when you are a PhD candidate. And then at that point, your task is to actually do the project that you proposed. So that's what it means to be a PhD candidate. And as far as advice for for people who might want to be a scientist someday, so I had a kind of unusual path to to my PhD program. I'm in a program that's only somewhat connected to my area of study um, in in undergrad, which was botany. And I started the PhD program about 14 years after I got my bachelor's. So I don't have like a standard formula for success. Um, But my advice is to take whatever opportunities might come your way to actually participate in scientific research. So there are a lot of citizen scientist opportunities to look into. Also, you know, you will you will come across these opportunities opportunities as a high school student or an undergraduate student. And then when you're taking part, um, be curious and ask a lot of questions. Uh, There are really no stupid questions. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes people people want to ask me a question and they'll they'll preface it with like, oh, maybe this is a dumb or basic question. uh, But, you know, and then it'll turn out to be a great question Mm -hmm. about some Mm -hmm. fundamental aspect of astrobiology that we're still trying to figure out. Like, um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. People will be like, well, how would you know for certain you actually found evidence of life? And it's like, yeah, great question. Mm -hmm. Not, not dumb at all. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, I think a lot of people think science is this, you know, full of eureka moments and you're in the lab and it's like the montages you've seen in movies, but it's, really kind of a slow, iterative, you, you do something, you see if it worked, you check with other experts. So I'm glad you mentioned all of that because that's how real science works. Absolutely. It, yes, it is very slow, very iterative, <laughs> but also awesome and fun. Right, right. And Andrea, I know for some of your research, you're studying microfossils. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly a microfossil is? So um, a microfossil is actually a fossilized microorganism. So 
um, when we think about microorganisms, we think like bacteria mm -hmm. um, generally, right? Uh, and that uh, there are um, fossilized bacteria over, well, fossilized microorganisms that might be bacteria that are over 3 billion years old. So this is how, by studying these fossils, this is how we could learn about some of the earliest life on Earth and how those microorganisms impacted Earth as they evolved. And that's what we do. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's good to get that input because we've been talking about dinosaurs and other much larger fossils before. So we want to just, you know, make sure people know that there are other fossils out there that are a lot harder to look for. Well, yeah, and, and very different to look for. And you use them to to ask different questions and learn different things about past life on Earth. Yeah, absolutely. So the big question I want to pitch to both of you, do you think there ever was life on Mars? Ooh. Yeah, that is the big question. Was there ever life on Mars? Um, and it's 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 tough to it's it's tough to answer. Um, I mean, that's of course the whole point of this uh, Mars mission, and uh, one of the big points of the NASA's Mars Exploration Program in in general is to figure out if there ever was life on Mars. As Andrea just talked about, you know, we study microfossils uh, on Earth, and that's to learn about early life on Earth. And the reason that we're involved with the Mars mission is because we think if there ever was life on Mars, it evolved very early on, you know, originated and evolved very early on in Mars's history. And it likely, you know, it would have started off as being microbial, would have been single-celled, tiny little organisms, microscopic organisms, like we have on Earth now and like we had on Earth early on in its history. And so... That's why, you know, if that's the only kind of life Mars ever had, that makes it more difficult to find because we need microscopic instruments to to study these. And, and it's not going to be, you know, we won't find petrified forests or, you know, fossils of dinosaurs on Mars that might be sticking out of a, a sand dune or something. Right. You know, so it does make it more of a challenge. Now, you know, to get to the actual question it was asked was, do we think there was ever life on Mars? I think there's a good chance that there was. I mean, I I can't say yes or no, but we, if we didn't think there was possibly life on Mars, we wouldn't we wouldn't be there looking. We wouldn't be spending the make spending the time and effort. Right. But Mars is Mars was very similar to Earth early in its history. It had water on the surface. There were lakes. There were, uh, you know, there was would have had to have been rain. Uh, on, on the surface. So the atmosphere was thicker than it is now. It was warmer on the surface than it is now. Yeah. So therefore we say early on in Mars's history, billions of years ago, Mars was, would have been habitable, would have been able to support life and uh, host life on its surface. Now uh, that doesn't mean there had to have been life. It just means that life could have, could have been there. Right. It's not really like that now. So finding life on the surface of Mars now is 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 unlikely just because of the, the harsh surface conditions. It's very, very cold. It's very, very dry. Uh, the atmospheric pressure is extremely low, so you can't have liquid water at the surface. But you get down a little ways into the surface of Mars, it's, you know, if there ever was life on Mars in the past, it's possible life is still there, but it's not going to be at the surface. It's going to be deep down in, in the rocks. Uh -huh. But we find life deep in the rocks on Earth as well. Microbial life 
these microscopic organisms, they there's lots of different kinds and they can live in lots of different types of environments. They live in deep rock, deep cracks in the rocks of the earth today. They live in hot springs, you know, in, in, in boiling acid. They live in, uh, you know, they live in very salty conditions deep in the ocean, you know, in parts of uh, parts of the world. They can live lots of different places. So it's microorganisms can can thrive in places that are not just like the surface of the earth today. Yeah, well, very hardy creatures, clearly. Andrea, do you have anything to add to that? I will just add a very short answer, which is yes, I really do think it's likely that there was once microbial life on Mars. Very cool. For all the reasons Andy said. Yeah, gotcha. (laughs) So we should, uh, you know, have some hesitancy when we see those news stories about people that say there's a bear on Mars or a frog or like a rock that is looks like a door leading into a Martian house. Absolutely. We should be skeptical of those those sorts of claims. Yeah. Very good. And that's, that's not at all the kind of kinds of things that we're looking for. Like Andy just explained. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we've, uh, we've been talking about Mars. It's clearly what you both are interested in. Do you think there are any other good places to look for life in our solar system? Yeah, so there it, there are there are some other places in our solar system, and this is something that you know we've been learning over the last you know several decades. Uh, as I mentioned in my previous answer about Mars, life doesn't require you know the conditions we find on the surface of Earth that that you know that you and I you know and all of us humans live under. If it's microbial life, it can live under lots of different conditions. And as we've gone out and explored the solar system, we've found more and more places that are potentially habitable, uh, again, meaning can support life. Doesn't mean they're inhabited, they're just, they could possibly right, right. support life. And one such place is uh, is one of the moons of Jupiter. It's called Europa, one of the, what's called a Galilean moon, because okay. it's one of the four large moons discovered by Galileo back in the, in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, the moon itself is covered in ice, and we we can know we know that we can study that from Earth and tell that it's the surface is covered in ice. But we've also used uh, satellites that have gone out to study Jupiter and have studied some of its moons. And when able was it, they were able to tell that there is a layer of water beneath the ice, a thick you know like an ocean of water between the rocky planet, or excuse me, the rocky moon, the rocky surface, and the the ice cap on top of it. So the ice kind of protects the water and keeps it able to be liquid because it's really far out in the solar system. It's really, really cold. But it's possible that there's life. That moon, that that ocean is potentially is habitable, would be habitable. So it's possible that's a the place that life could have originated and uh, and could be thriving. And NASA has missions planned to to study that. It's just harder to study further out in the solar system because it takes a lot longer to get there. All right. Makes sense. So clearly a different uh, different kind of environment than what we would expect on Mars. Absolutely, yeah. This is like a, a potentially currently habitable environment as opposed to Mars where we think, you know, the surface of Mars is not really habitable for any sort of life that we, we think of now. But again, deep in the rocks of Mars, but that's also very difficult to get to just because it's hard to drill into, into the ground. Right. What about you, Andrea? Do you have any favorite candidates? Yeah, I do. So another moon, this is a moon of Saturn called Titan that also has a habitable environment, but it's a lot 
it's it's actually has liquid methane on its surface um and maybe liquid liquid water under its surface hmm. but we it it makes it a habitable environment that's that's probably the the most different from earth environment yeah. that we think is habitable within our solar system huh. if that makes sense yeah very interesting so yeah, so I think that that is a, an exciting place to look for life. And there's actually a NASA mission in the works uh, called Dragonfly, working on that. And its target launch, I think, is 2026, so pretty soon. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. It seems like there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon here. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much. It's super exciting to have you know actual experts in the field that are currently working on this rover that's moving around on Mars right now. So this is a huge pleasure to have both of you with, with us. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It's been, been a pleasure to talk to you all. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your excellent you so questions. Much. Well, that was so exciting having both of them on. I am definitely on the edge of my seat, and it sounds like I will have to be for quite a while here to see if we find any evidence of life on Mars. What do you think, Tim? Life on Mars? Yeah, that was very interesting. I read a lot about dinosaurs, but I admittedly don't read a whole lot about potential life on other planets, especially not potential fossils on other planets. Well, we're looking forward to seeing everyone on our next podcast. But if you are looking for a very interesting dinosaur experience, boy, do we have something for you. So currently at Cranbrook Institute of Science, we have the new Sue the T-Rex experience. And Tim, I know you and I have both spent a lot of time in here, but it is cooler than I think we can adequately convey on this podcast, wouldn't you say? Not to give it all away, but it has probably the most accurate representation of a Tyrannosaurus Rex that I have ever seen. That's awesome. And we hope to see everyone there. Make sure you join us next time on the Cranbrook Paleo Podcast as we're talking about dinosaur toys.